Hello, welcome to the Anti-Racist Leadership Institute Research and Practice Podcast. Today is a solo podcast where I am going to answer some questions from the Ask Me Anything option on our website. We found at antiracisminstitute.com. There we describe what we do, who we are, and we also have an option on the About Us tab at the top of the page where you can scroll down to Ask Me Anything, and you can literally ask me anything about anti-racist leadership, DEI work, oppression, racism, structural racism, and I will do my best to answer that question either via email or on a session like this one. And so today I'll be talking about five of our top questions that we get either through the Ask Me Anything, but we also get them in person when I'm doing conferences or workshops um, in the field. And so the first question I'm going to field is, how is anti-racist leadership different than DEI, that's diversity, equity, inclusion, DEIB, the B is belonging, JEDI, I've heard, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. So how is anti-racist leadership different than these, these phrases that we often hear in the education space? And everything I share with you is my personal opinion in terms of being in this work for over a decade and how I've seen the work manifest in the field. And so the question, once again, is how is anti-racist leadership different than DEI, DEIB, and JEDI? And through my experience and what we do, we're an anti-racism leadership institute, is we seek to validate that we are actually alleviating oppression on historically marginalized community of color, communities of color. And our philosophy and also an accepted definition of anti-racism is actually validating that we are alleviating the oppression on communities of color. So for example, in our work that if a school district is having an issue with overrepresentation of black and brown kids in special education, we not only want to increase the consciousness and awareness raising around this as a phenomena, but we also seek to have individuals understand how to build their skill set and leadership capability to actually address the issue so they can reduce the overrepresentation. Now, how that has looked different in, in the DEI or DEIB or JEDI space that I've seen in my experience is that organizations sometimes come in or experts come in, and this is not a judgment on what they do, but how it happens and how what makes us different is that most organizations I find and consultants rely on the consciousness and awareness raising and changing mindset with a hope that it transitions to outcomes for kids, right? And so in anti-racist leadership, we start with the students first, meaning that we want to identify the problem with specificity and then backwards plan on how we build the infrastructure, the thinking, the planning, the leadership, and the moves to make sure we're actualizing the outcomes for kids. And in the DEI space, what we've seen through practice and through experience, and also when I was leader being subject to this type of training, is that there's a large gap between conscious and awareness raising and mindset and actualizing the outcomes on kids. And so what the difference is, is in our approach, in the anti-racist approach, we seek to validate and actualize the outcome. And in the DEI space, I'm not sure that there's been a connection between what is sort of, sort of the learning and what are the outcomes. There's space for both. And I'm not making any judgment on which way is right or wrong. But what I'm saying in our work, what is different is that we actualize the results to the benefit of black and brown kids. Question number two, and this is something that folks actually ask, 
but also ask in a way that they receive this as sort of what they see as resistance to working around race. Question number two is what about other identities as an LGBTQIA plus students who are learning English as a second language, students from low SES backgrounds, and these are all areas where folks with different identities come into the school space and they may be experiencing hardships that are particular to their identities, right? And so the question again is what, you know, as we're talking about race, what about other identities? When are we going to talk about them in a way that we talk about race? And our approach is not to say that, you know, race is more important than other identities. Our approach is that when there are discernible outcomes by race within a school system, it's a problem that needs to be addressed. Now, within the LGBTQIA community, within the home language community, within the SCS status community, race does play a factor as well. So when we are looking at these other identities in terms of creating strategies to make sure that their schooling experience is one that's fruitful for them, we, we should be careful that we use an intersectional approach, meaning that all these identities may have certain ways in which they experience a schoolhouse that might not be the most positive for them, whether it's academically or socioemotionally, that these identities are, are ones in which we can look at in isolation, but we also need to use an intersectional approach because a lot of the same systems that are set up that disadvantage students of color are also systems that act in different ways among students from the LGBTQIA plus community, students whose home language is not English, and who are of low SES status. And so it's not that we should ignore any, which, any one of the identities. We need to make sure that we're being inclusive and we're being intersectional when we have these conversations and not pushing race off the table. Paul Gorski writes this article on equity detours. And he talks about this as one of the detours that when we bring up and we put race on the table, often folks get so uncomfortable that they want to sort of crowd the table with all these identities and do it all at once. But what happens is race is often the most uncomfortable topic out of all the topics on the table, leaving it to either be cordoned to a very small discussion or pushed off the table altogether in service of addressing the issues of other identities. So what I encourage us to do, that if we are using an intersectional approach, always keeping race as a part of the conversation, even when we seek to solve issues that are pertinent to other identities when students come to school as well. So question number three. And this comes from our leaders who, who are engaged in this work, who are really invested in this work and really want to do best by students who are learning along their anti-racist journey. And the question is, what do you do about teachers who do not have the right mindset? And this comes from a place where leaders are on their anti-racist journey, right? And they're realizing that systems and structures in the school building might not be set up in a way that's beneficial for students of color. And they're coming to a better realization about their role as a leader and as their role in terms of influence the people who are closest to the students, which are the teachers. And so often they come back with, as they're leaning into this work and not just doing the DEI work of talking about it, but trying to execute and helping teachers shift their practice from just talking about it to actually doing the work and actualizing outcomes for kids. And then the question becomes, what do you do about teachers who do not have the right mindset? And that we take that and sort of switch the sort of switch to framing around what that question is asking, right? Because if we set up this dichotomy between right and wrong, 
and we as leaders are on the side of right, that means those who aren't on the side are wrong. And when we take that approach, we create this unnecessary divide between who we are as educators. And I'm not going to say that 100% of educators come into the profession because we love kids, we want to, we want to work in schools, and it's our calling. I'm not going to say that that is 100% of every educator. But we have to realize that you know, educators, especially those who've been in for quite some time, who we might say doesn't, don't have the right mindset, they come to school for some reason. And it often has to do with their feeling of being important and an important process in a child's life, helping them go from where they were at the beginning of the year all the way to the end, try, li- liking to see the growth and development that we have a role in playing in a, in a child's life. And so we, and I consider myself to still be a practitioner myself, come into it on behalf of students. Now, when we come to this point where we believe that we are on the side of right and someone may need to come over to our side, our first job is to lead with an empathy approach, right? And this is very, very hard to do, right? Because leaders are under enormous pressure to make um, monumental change in a short window of time, often within one school year. That's sometimes real, but sometimes pressure we put on ourselves, that we feel we should make prolific change, be able to make prolific change in a short amount of time. Even if a vestige of structural racism has been in the school school systems for decades, right? We often hold ourselves to unrealistic expectations that we fixed it within a school year, right? And that often then puts us in this space of, you know, these folks aren't moving fast enough, and now we want to get them to comply with what we want them to do because they don't have the right mindset. And again, it sets up this dichotomy where we're necessarily at odds. Now, in the situation, we need to lead with tremendous empathy. We have to first empathize, meaning that we need to lead with inquiry and understand their perspective. Like, if we think that a teacher might not be invested in our initiative to reduce office referrals for black and brown kids, and this is a problem we see in a lot of districts, right? That we have to first understand from that teacher why they believe their over-reliance on office referrals is something that's necessary and that's good for kids in their mind, right? We have to suspend our judgment, suspend our beliefs, and truly seek to understand the motivations of teachers or even our co-leaders who might not be on the same page with our anti-racist leadership. And only when we can truly understand where they are coming from and how they believe their practices actually in benefit of kids, and we can understand that we don't have to agree but we actually understand where they're coming from, then and only then should we engage in meeting them where they are and finding a way to partner towards our overall goal, which is alleviating the oppression on students of color. So a point in case, I have an example of a teacher who was over-reliant on, and this is a recent case in one of my clients, who was over-reliant on office referrals for particularly Latino boys, right? And the assistant principal that I coached, I asked her to go back and just ask a bunch of questions of this particular teacher around why they felt the need to write so many referrals, get the office involved, and constantly be reliant on this office for their classroom management. And by leading with inquiry, what the teacher found out, I mean, what the the principal, the AP found out from the teacher is that pretty much the teacher had never really learned how to effectively, one, develop engaging instruction so the students aren't disengaged, and two, develop a classroom management system that was tightly coupled enough that they could have a progressive system where they could redirect students without having using, not having to use a nuclear option of referral. 
Now, the teacher didn't say this in so many words, but what they did say is that they've been trying everything they can with these two particular classes, and they just can't seem to get it right with this subset of kids. And that's what gave the assistant principal the understanding the teacher did not have these tools in their toolbox, was able to enter in. They wanted what's best for kids because they'd expended the toolbox and did everything they knew how to do, but they didn't have any more tools to then expend and use in order to reduce their reliance on referrals. And so the approach was then to partner with the teachers to help them develop something so they could understand how to develop more engaging lessons and really increase their classroom management structure so they wouldn't have to rely on referrals. And that's the empathy approach, opposed to the compliance approach where you had 50 referrals in the first quarter, we'd like you to cut that in half to 25. It's a very technical approach that relies on compliance that puts a lot more pressure on teachers who may not have the capacity to develop systems where they are improving their pedagogy and their classroom management. It just produces more stress with the teacher that doesn't have any more tools in the toolbox and may lead to burnout, disengagement of the teacher, or the ways in which a classroom may be more chaotic while we might have less referrals, but doesn't actually build their toolbox. And so what do we do about teachers who don't have the right mindset? We enter with empathy and inquiry to really understand where they're coming from and their approach so that we can be on the same page about entry points to work together to partner towards our anti-racist goals. Okay, question number four. And this sort of goes along with question number three very closely. How do we address resistance? How do we address resistance within maybe our co-leaders, maybe within our direct supervisor at the central office level? And I'm talking about the principal AP position now about addressing resistance within these positions, resistance within teachers. And I'm going to use an analogy that what we expect, at least myself, when I was a teacher, as well as when I was an administrator of teachers, that if a student was in my class or in a class of one of the teachers who worked at my school and the student was, was disengaged, say they came to school and they would sleep on their desk or they wouldn't bring back their homework or they would race through end of unit tests and really do poorly and exhibit signs of being disengaged in learning. My expectation of myself as their teacher was to adjust my instruction and differentiate to figure out how to engage them and get them to willfully invest in their education in a way that I could reach them to realize the importance of education and investing in math and science, which was my cognate. Same thing of teachers that worked with me in my building, that if a student is disengaging, they can't just write them off and say, well, you're resistant as a student, so I'm not going to serve you until you figure out how to be a student in my classroom. The expectation of myself and most you know, anti-racist administrators is that we adjust. And most administrators in general, that teachers adjust, we differentiate for the, for the student, we seek out resources to invest the student in learning. Now, when we get into a position where we're no longer a teacher and we can understand this approach as a teacher and we never give up students, when we level up to the position of being an administrator, whether it's an AP or, or a principal or even a superintendent, but in this case, the example that I'm using is as an AP or, or superintendent, when the question comes up, how do I address resistance? We have to think about our teachers are now our classroom. So just like we expect them to differentiate for students who are disengaged, who may be resisting learning, and we find that certain teachers are resisting coming aboard to our anti-racist goals, 
we have to find a way to differentiate our approach in order to help them understand the purpose and also join with them in a way that we can get on the same page and move forward. Now, this is easier said than done because it's so easy, super easy for us as administrators to say, oh, this teacher is just resistance. They're difficult. They're of the old school. They've been around for 15 or 20 years and they don't want to change or they don't like those brown kids. All of these negative attributes, we can totally attach to that teacher and say, it is not my responsibility because you are this way. Right. And that is often a cop out because it's no longer our responsibility. It is your fault as a teacher that you're this way. Hence, you're a resistor. And I'm just going to go for compliance. You do this or else. Now, we understand not doing that when it comes to kids. Right. We can't say this kid comes into class. He or she sleeps or they don't come to class. They skip class. Oh, well, you're just a resistor. I'm going to give up on you. It's your problem. We expect teachers to absorb that and say, how can I engage you? So the same thing goes for administrators. We find out that individuals are resisting. What that means is there's something about our approach that's failing to invest them in our process. And again, I completely understand this is easier said than done, right? Because a lot of the adult behaviors really irk us. And we often want to think that our approach is the right approach. And hence, how could they not understand where we're going and come aboard? They're just a resistor. If we use the more, like I said before, the more empathetic approach, to seek to understand the, the source of that resistance and where it comes from. It often comes from a noble place where they believe they're doing the best thing on behalf of kids. So for example, and I'm talking about a recent case in which a school system and, it's, and a particular school was diversifying rapidly over the course of five years, where previously the school served 98% students from middle-income white families. A lot of the teachers had become experts and developing a pedagogy and a style to reach the families in which they served because that was the main population. Now, over the course of five years, it switched from 98% middle to high income white students to more of a Hispanic Latino population from middle to high income to low income Latino population that reduced the white population. And the school began to have issues, right? With engaging students in learning, suspension rates, overrepresentation of Latino boys in special education. And the, everyone saw this, you know, the administration saw this as a problem, but when they came to address this with the, 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 the teachers as a whole, they encountered that, well, it's not our fault, right? It's these students who are bringing in the problem. Well, it's not our fault. If these students would just be like our old students, they, it wouldn't be this way. So a lot of distancing and blaming it on the students and not taking responsibility, Right. And what we have to understand about the approach from the administrator is we have to understand where this sort of absolvement of responsibility comes from. It often comes from a place like we don't have, we've never had the necessity to develop the skill set to properly educate this other group because we've never had them in our school before. And we've been around 10 or 15 years. So instead of saying, you know, I just don't know how to serve these students, the defensiveness comes from that I really don't know how, and I don't understand why you're putting pressure and making me feel guilty and shameful that I don't, hence I'm going to resist. And so another approach is to understand with the one-on-one -on -one communication and really narrowing it down for teachers that we're having an issue, right, with developing an education process that's best for this new population. How do we understand what we are good at and what we are not so good at and how do we change our approach and ways of being, not just in the classroom, but as a school as a whole, in our processes to better educate this new population? 
So we don't see teachers as resistors to a new population, but as partners in a way that we need to change our approach in a way of questioning and partnering with teachers so that we don't run up against what seems like resistance, but often is a lack of tools in the toolbox. Okay, the last question, I'm gonna read this verbatim too. It's kind of long, right? I wrote it down, all right. Question number five. And this comes from a lot of schools that come our way in, in search of partnerships. And it says, we have been doing DEI work for years. With little to no evidence, our organization has changed. And a lot of teachers and leaders are frustrated and ready to move on and not talk about race anymore. How do we reset and re-engage staff in this work? So basically, the environment has run out of racial stamina. You know, we've been doing this for years and years and years. We can actually go down the line and litany of providers we've had. We've read Glenn Singleton's Courageous Conversations book. We've read your book, Unconscious Bias in Schools. We had Goldie Muhammad come and speak. We, we're understanding more of culturally responsive teaching. We've done all this work with adults, right, over the course of years and years and years. And individuals has leaned, have leaned into the work. They've attended. They've engaged. And it's four years later. And what we were intended to do was to increase our outcomes for students of color. But we're noticing that when we do our data analysis, nothing much has changed from when we started. And now individual are check, individuals are checking out. They really don't understand why we have to keep talking about this. We've gotten to a place of apathy around, we've done as much as we can do as adults. We've done this work for four years. Now, can we just move on and do something else, right? And so what I say to individuals who ask, how do we reset and re-engage staff that have gotten to this place of having done this work for so long that they've run out of racial stamina? The best way to re-engage is to pause, reflect, and then decide on what outcomes are we looking for specifically with students. Because what we see more often than not, when organizations get to this place where they've been doing this for years with little or nothing to show for their efforts, is that from the beginning, they did not start with an end in mind. They didn't start with a problem of practice around where are we going exactly? What's our North Star, right? So without an, an understanding from everyone who's subject to the training and the initiative, knowing where we're going, where we are currently, you know, according to data analysis and where we're going exactly, we end up in the space where we're doing a bunch of stuff. And I call it just a, a bunch of adults doing stuff, good stuff, conscious awareness raising, you know, having courageous conversations to sort of build our own dexterity to have conversations around the work and our own knowledge base. But without an aim about what practices are supposed to change in service of what goal. So the idea behind this is a hard reset in terms of we need to pause, decide where we are, right, according to student outcomes, whether it's academics, attendance, behavior, special education process, all the number of student outcomes and data that we have access to, decide where we are now, and then decide where do we intend to go with this work? How is our practice going to change when it comes uh, to uh, realizing the outcomes in which we've identified? And so we have a very particular process to get folks to reset where we, one, identify the problem, right? Two, we identify what's, is, what's the end of the year goal? Where are we going? You know, very clearly that we can explain to anyone who works in the building. And then once we've decided what the end of the year goal is, okay, what are then our milestones? How are we going to measure along the way? At what point in time are we going to decide that we're making progress according to how we should be 
how we should be during the school year so we ultimately know that we're headed towards our end of the year goal. Once we've decided on milestones, then we decide on, all right, so in order to reach the milestones, what are the adult changes in practice that we are going to implement with fidelity with the expectation that we're going to achieve these milestones? And by doing that, we're able to create a process where we implement change, we implement the treatment and change in adult behavior. And if we aren't meeting our milestones, we then have something to talk about on whether one, is everyone implementing these interventions with fidelity? Or if we are implementing these interventions as adults with fidelity, why aren't they working to meet our milestones? And we can adjust along the way and course correct, right? So we have the changes in adult behavior that we've all agreed upon that we can talk against according to our milestones. And then we complete the process. And the last thing in the process, which often is first, where I think is a big mistake, we decide on what is a necessary professional development that the adults are going to need to change their behavior. So again, instead of going from, we identify a problem, we go right to professional development, and then we hope for the best, which is typically how we end up in a situation where we don't see results among kids. And again, instead of problem identification, professional development, hope for the best, is what we see a lot. Instead of that process, we start with problem statement. What are our goals? What are our milestones? What are the changes in adult behaviors that we're going to buy into and implement with fidelity? And then the last thing is we're going to decide on the professional development necessary to support the adults in doing this work. And by completing this thinking before we launch any initiative, we have then something, a process that if it works well, we can replicate. We can replicate over time because we know what we did exactly. And if it doesn't work well, we have the opportunity to look at the adult behaviors and the milestones and decide how do we change our practice in real time during the school year to make and meet our milestones. And so how do we re-engage staff who has been doing the work for a while and hasn't seen any little to no progress? We reset by having a specific focus around a problem of practice and then deciding the right steps in terms of where we're going and sort of closing the loop on change rather than just having PD and hoping for the best. Now, those are the top five things, the questions that we get asked a lot from our Ask Anything option on our website and also in person. If there are any more questions you have, feel free to visit our website, pop it in. There's no question that's off limits and I'll have another one of these sessions sometime in 2024 and we'll deploy it to answer questions that come in. I will also respond to you directly. If it's a question that's burning that you want an answer to, feel free to check our website and the Ask Anything website is antiracisminstitute.com and uh, click on the About Us and then the Ask Anything tab will open and you can shoot me any question. I appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Anti-Racism Leadership Institute Research and Practice Podcast and we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Anti-Racism Leadership Institute podcast. Remember, the fight against racism starts with each and every one of us. Together, we can create inclusive environments in our schools that celebrate diversity and empower all students. For more information, visit our website at antiracisminstitute.com and subscribe to our channel. Join us next time as we continue to shine a light on the champions of change. Stay inspired, committed, and let's make a difference together.